to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. This morning, I'm going to be uh, preaching on a, a topic that I would like to admit my uh, immaturity in the topic um, to start. And uh, this is something that I feel it's really pivotal and really crucial for the body of Christ to uh, come to a realization to. And uh, something that I've always uh, endeavored to, to write about, to, to speak about. And uh, it's something that I hope I'll gain more life experience on and uh, revisit as, as time comes. Uh, how many of you were here when I preached a sermon called The Purpose of the Thorns? Yeah? Some of you were here, Purpose of the Thorns. And that was an extremely hard uh, sermon for me to preach. So basically, I, the, the whole premise was that, that you know, the, the thorns aren't, they, they don't have the final say. Come on. Yeah. The thorns, your affliction, your circumstance, they don't have the final say. Yeah. It's so interesting that the, the thorns that were used to signify the curse of man, the, the grounds were, were, were cursed with thorns as a signifi- uh, to signify man's failure. That same thorn was, was uh, present in the tabernacle. It said that the tabernacle was made with acacia wood, which, is, which comes from a tree that is known for its thorns. And that, that same thorns was, was present uh, uh, on the, 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 the head of Jesus. He wore that crown of thorns. And from that crown of thorns, that affliction that he bore for you and me, came that precious blood that flowed, that cleansed you and me from every sin and righteousness paid for our healing, paid for our righteousness in full. Amen. The thorns, they, they don't have the final say. Everything is, is redemptive in nature because of Jesus, because of what he has done for you and me. There's a purpose to the thorns if you allow a purpose to develop from a circumstance. And in that sermon, I touched on something super briefly, and I would like to expand on that today. And uh, I, I said this, I said, um, this Christian walk is one of mystery. There are things that happen and things that God does that go far beyond our comprehension because He is God and we are not. And I made this statement in, in light of, of reading scripture and my personal walk with the Lord and recognizing that He is far beyond my human cr- comprehension. His ways are far greater. The Bible says that the ways of God, who can fathom, who can come to an understanding to? If you are able to fully comprehend and understand God, then you have a God limited to your human capacity. And that is not God at all. God is far beyond. How can a created one comprehend its creator in full? doesn't make sense. And this is a God that we serve. He, he's far beyond our comprehension. His ways are, are far greater. That is a God that we serve. The Christian walk is one, one that is such. It has absolutes. Jesus' blood paid for everything. Absolute. God is good. Absolute. But then we, we live in this tension almost of what is absolute revelation and what is mystery? There are things that happen in your life and mine that we don't understand. There are things that, that God does, His ways that are so far beyond uh, what we can fathom that it's just a, a complete mystery to you and me. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. And this Christian walk is one where we, we manage that tension of revelation and mystery. Follow me. If we live without mystery, then we live on yesterday's revelation, we live on what we already understand, and we're basically walking the same familiar road that we've been walking day after day after day. And that means that there's no progress, there's no growth. That's why we need mystery. That's why we need to to almost make friends with this uncomfortable reality of sometimes I go in and I don't understand. Sometimes I go in and and I, I don't fully comprehend. And that's where trust comes in. Trust basically is this. Trust is, I don't understand, but I believe in you. And that's why this Christian uh, 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 walk that we all uh, embark on is often referred to as the Christian faith. Faith is only in function when there is mystery attached to it. Or else it's, it's, it's all within your understanding. There is no... Uh, aspect where you exercise your faith. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. But it's so vital to your and mine 
yours, yours and my walk. Yeah. It's the Christian faith. I recently chanced upon uh, this man talking about lobsters, and I love a good lobster roll, a lobster on his own. Lobster anything, to be honest. And, uh, and this guy was, was describing the growth process of a lobster. You know, A lobster would grow in its shell, and then it would grow to such a point where the shell wouldn't be able to contain the growth of the lobster, and it gets really uncomfortable, it, really, it gets really irritated, and then it goes and hides in some rocks, and then it sheds off its shell, and then it grows on a new shell, and then it comes back out. And then the lobster will start growing again, and it will get, get so trapped by its own shell, it gets uncomfortable, and when it feels uncomfortable, it goes to the rock, and then it, it drops off the shell, and then it grows on a new one. And that process repeats itself again, and again, and again. Here's what I want you to catch. It's discomfort. It's a stimulus for growth. Sometimes you and I, we have to go through uncomfortable circumstances. We have to be placed in scenario situations where we, we, we're scared. We, we don't know what's going on. It's uncomfortable. But can I put it to you that in that scenario, in that circumstance, it's your greatest opportunity and potential for growth. Come on, are you following me? Without mystery and uncertainty, there can be no faith. And today I want to elaborate a bit on this, this concept, this topic of mystery. And my sermon title for today is Living in Mystery. Everybody say, Living in Mystery. Beautiful. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to kick off uh, with a verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. If your Bibles follow me, if not, the verse is on the screen. And let's have that verse up. It says this. It's a bit small, so bring your Bible. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard him in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Okay, we're going to stop there. So here is John, okay, this is not John the Apostle, this is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is in prison, okay, we, we, we heard uh, uh, Joy speak a, a little bit about John the Baptist and how he ended up in prison. So he was in prison and he was on death row, he was, he was, going to, he was about to be executed, uh, he was about to be killed, and he's in prison and he managed to send word to two of his disciples to go and question Jesus as to whether he is the Messiah. Okay, I want you to, to, to catch that. John sent his disciples to, to question Jesus, whether are you the Messiah or do I wait for a coming one? Do I wait for someone else? And then Jesus said these things, like tell John to, to, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And this is John the Baptist. I don't know whether you're acquainted with John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah was, was a priest in the temple. He was, he was there to, to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And one day as he was doing his priestly duties, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and promised him a son. But you catch this, Elizabeth was barren. She didn't have any kids. And so, and so this promise came at a time of, of sheer hopelessness, sheer disappointment. They were like, can, I, I will never have a child. And then the angel Gabriel came and promised him a son. And that son would be John the Baptist. It's interesting that the, the angel also shut the mouth of Zechariah. Because if you read scriptures, you'll recognize that Zechariah didn't really believe the angel. He had that angelic experience. The, angelic, the angel appeared before him and, and said these things. But Zechariah, because of disappointment, because of to be honest, offense in his heart, he doubted. And the angel of the Lord shut his mouth. It's so funny to me that in the same breath to which a promise is released, a supposed judgment is released at the same time. But here's this. Do you know, do, do you know the Bible says that in your tongue is the power of life and death? 
your words have the potential and the ability to abort the promises of God. That judgment was not a judgment against Zechariah, it was a judgment for Zechariah. Because if Zechariah kept doubting, he kept being negative, he could potentially abort the promise, which would be John the Baptist. Your words have power. Your declarations have power. If you don't believe me, how are you here? You are here today, sitting in church, saved because you made a declaration. Say, I declare, I profess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Declarations are powerful. Do you agree with me? And so this is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist would be known as the last of the Old Testament prophets, and John the Baptist would have countless disciples following him. And John, from a young age, received a charge from the Lord that he was to baptize people. And as he would baptize people, he would find the Messiah. And that was John the Baptist's mission in life. That was why he, he, he professed to exist on the earth, to prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist would baptize people. And, and if you could picture me, he would take a person and you'll push in the water and look at him and go, nope, next. And push another person in the water and go, nope, next. And he was on a quest. He was searching for the Messiah. And John the Baptist, as he was baptizing people one day, he saw Jesus from afar off. And without even coming into close proximity with him, without even putting Jesus in water, he looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. Behold, Jesus. And that was John the Baptist. And he would go on to baptize Jesus in the water. And we all know the dove came down filled him with the Holy Spirit, he went in the wilderness and launched three years of ministry. And I want you to, to go to another passage of Scripture with me. Let's go to Luke 4, verse 18. Luke 4, verse 18. Okay. Luke 4, verse 18 would be commonly known as Jesus' inaugural address to which he launched his ministry. When you are elected into office as a president, the first thing that you have to do is you have to make an inaugural address. How many of you are following me? Yeah. And in the inaugural address, you state uh, some promises that you want to accomplish. You state what you're going to do and accomplish in your term. And it really sets the stage for the rest of your political career. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus cites Isaiah 61. And he cites this passage of scripture. And this passage of scripture which he cites actually launches him into his time of ministry on the earth. And this was Jesus' promise to mankind. This was Jesus' promise to the people of the day, to you and me even today, that he has come to fulfill, to accomplish these things. Are you following me? Yes? yes. Luke 4, 18, and, and Jesus says this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Holy Spirit came upon him because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Jesus quotes that. And if you were to study the Bible and, and understand a bit about the, the scenario, a bit about the context to which Jesus proclaims these things, there are three really controversial things that actually happen as Jesus proclaimed these things. The first thing that, that was controversial was that Jesus started quoting from Isaiah 61 in the temple. Are you following me? He opened the book and he started quoting this scripture. And Isaiah 61 doesn't end here. It goes on. After this verse, and he has come to uh, bring recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And if you read it in Isaiah 61, there go, there's another line that goes after that verse and it says to, to exact, to bring about the vengeance of the Lord. You must understand, for the Jewish people of that day, that was the crescendo of the verse, if you will. These were people oppressed. These were people who were, were second class and they were longing for a mess messianic figure to bring about deliverance, to exact vengeance on their behalf on the Roman rulers. And their idea of Messiah was one, who was the, a, a person who brought vengeance. And just as 
they were they were longing, they were hoping for this guy to be the Messiah. This guy is going to bring vengeance on our behalf. Just as he was about to hit that verse, he closed the book. He closed the book. He said, no, and these words are fulfilled today. They were, they were riled up, they were upset. But Jesus did that. He closed the book on vengeance for you and me. Because here's, here's the thing. He satisfies the wrath of God. No longer do we need to, to exact vengeance upon vengeance because grace has come in through the cross. Grace has come in through Jesus. He has closed the book on vengeance once and for all. And that was an extremely controversial thing that Jesus did. And the next, if you will do a verse for verse comparison between Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, you'll realize real quickly that Jesus added into, onto Isaiah 61. He added one more line. Okay, if you, if you would like to do the homework, you can go back and just do a verse for verse comparison with Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. And here's the thing, Jesus added this line. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for, for the prisoners and he added this line, and recovery of sight for the blind. He added that line. Controversial. How can a guy add unto scripture unless he is the living word, unless he is the man who wrote this book to begin with? He added that line, and recovery of sight to the blind. This is why I believe he did it, because he's essentially saying that signs and wonders and miracles are critical to the Christian life, are critical to the life of the church, are critical to you, to yours and my existence. Signs, wonders and miracles, we need them. When I was in Haiti on a, on a mission trip, uh, we, we went and visited several churches and the main religion of Haiti is voodooism or Catholicism. And they were, they were beautiful stained glass uh, Catholic churches all around Haiti, the, the, the town that I went to. And, and there were countless people who professed to be believers, who professed to, to uh, be Catholics. And they would worship in a church. But here's the thing, because of the, the lack of health care in Haiti, they were desperate for healing. They were desperate for some miracle working power. And they couldn't find it in the Catholic Church. And so they turned to voodooism instead. And if you were to go to Haiti today, you'll recognize and you will realize real quickly that a lot of these Catholic churches are hybrid of voodoo and Catholicism. Because the Catholic Church in Haiti was not moving in signs and wonders and miracles, they brought in voodoo. There is a tremendous responsibility on your life and mine to model the power of Jesus Christ because the world so desperately longs for it, the world so desperately wants it, the world so desperately needs it. Signs and wonders, miracles. This church is called to move in miracles to provide answers to a world full of questions and needs. Amen. That's what Jesus did. Second thing he did. The third thing that Jesus did that was so controversial was that the Bible accounts that Jesus sat down in the temple after he was done. And if you were to study the architecture and the structure of the temple, you recognize that there were no seats in the temple. The priests were asked to stand continually. Why? Because the sacrifices they had to offer up to the Lord was never ending. Sin kept on growing, so sacrifices had to keep going. These sacrifices could not atone for the, the sin that was, was developing, so supply and demand, and so it had to keep going and going and going. And so the priests couldn't sit down. But there was one chair in the temple. There was one chair placed right smack in the middle. And that chair was reserved for the Messiah. It's called the Messiah's seat. And it was reserved, it was set apart for when the Messiah comes, he would come into the temple and he would sit down on that seat and declare himself Messiah, declare himself the fulfillment of these words, the fulfillment of these verses, the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy. And that was Jesus. So when Jesus sat down in that chair, he was essentially proclaiming to all the earth, to all the world, that I, the Messiah, have come to fulfill these things. Let's look back at John the Baptist. John's in prison. He's offended. John's in prison. He's disappointed. 
John, the one who baptized Jesus, who calls him out, the first person who calls him out publicly and declares him Messiah, John the Baptist, that man, he was in prison. And then he sends word to his two disciples. And he asks, inquire with Jesus, is he the Messiah or do I wait for coming one? How did a guy like that, such a prominent figure, come to a point where he would even doubt that Christ was the Messiah? How did he come to that point? Check out these verses. What does the fourth line say? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Where was John? John was in prison. Here's the word. But where was John? He was in prison. Jesus declared these words. He said he was Messiah. But where was John? Prison. Not just in prison, he was on death row, ready to be executed. That was where John was at. And then John got offended. How many of you find this scenario really familiar? That you may have had a word from the Lord, but you find yourself in a completely contrary scenario. Or you may have had a word of the Lord for healing of a family member, for healing for yourself, but it has not come to pass. Or you have had family members die, pass on. You had that word. Psalm says that he, he has come to, to release healing over us. It says in the Bible, by his stripes, we are healed. We were healed. You had that word, but you're in a place of disappointment, not offense. Mystery. Do not know. And in mystery, in uncertainty, is, there is a high potential to get offended. In pain, in weakness, in trial, John came to a conclusion that was contrary and contradictory to his ministry on the earth. It's so funny how easy an offense can derail us, even a man like John the Baptist. And if you were to study what that word offense actually means, it's actually referred to as a stumbling block. How many of you have heard of the word stumbling block? The word stumbling block actually originates from a cruel practice that the, the people in the days of old would do. And there will be blind people walking the streets. And these cruel people will take blocks of wood and put it in front of these blind people and they will trip over that block and they will actually fall. That's where we get the phrase, the term, stumbling block. And offense is just like that. It's just like that. It comes when we least expect it. It comes and it, it, it trips us up. It derails us from our walk. It derails us from our God-given destiny. And that's what offense is. It's so easy to disregard these feelings and these emotions. Some of you might have a legitimate offense with the Lord and you're thinking to yourself, Do, how can I admit it? He is God Almighty. Can I have these emotions? Can I feel this way to Him? Can I put it to you that if you do not deal with it, you sabotage your God-given destiny. You sabotage your walk with the Lord. The Bible says that in that day, worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. And the word truth there is not doctrinal truth. That word truth there means nothing hidden. You cannot express the fullness of your worship unless there is nothing hidden in your life. And today, as I'm speaking, there may be hidden offenses in your heart towards the Lord. Mystery. Uncomfortable. Are you following me today? Be frank with you this morning, I, last week was a week where I nearly had <laughs> an offense with the Lord. I, I was planning my proposal put a chunk of money in it, and uh, really uh, did my due diligence. I, I wreck it aside five times. I've never done it for any event I've been a part of, and uh, I, this is like, oh my gosh, I put, I went down five times, I told a bunch of lies, I repent, I'm so sorry, so, so sorry. And, and I, I, I did, I, I, I put so much work and effort into it, and I come to find out from some of Amy's close friends that Amy has been having dreams about me proposing. And I was like, Lord, you are not supposed to have favorites. And I was like, what? 
And I was, I, I mean, it's, it's so childish and humor me, but I was legitimately upset. I was so upset. I was like, I put in so much work and now she knows it's coming, but hey, she still cried, she still sobbed, so nothing's broke. I, I nearly went into that, you know. I mean, that was a lighthearted example, but um, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I w- a friend of mine texted me from Malaysia. He had a friend that was in Singapore that had a cousin uh, whose uh, baby son was in a hospital. And uh, he gave me um, a bit of details, but I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And so, you know, I'm okay-ish with, with kids, but I was like, let me bring like two mummies down with me just to be safe. And so I took Christine and Joy with me, and we went down to a hospital to pray for a baby boy. And this baby boy was, his name was uh, uh, Carlson, and Carlson was super cute. He, uh, he was, I think, seven months old at the time. And Carlson was actually a twin. He had, uh, he had uh, a twin sister. But the thing about Carlson was he was born with a condition where there was massive fluid retention in his head. When he was born, his head circumference was 40 centimeters. As a parent, you would know that that is huge. And as each month passes by, that circumference will increase by one to two centimeters. His head was so heavy, he couldn't crawl. He had to go for physiotherapy just to make sure his neck doesn't snap. And because of that pressure in his head, he was born uh, completely deaf. His ears weren't developed. He couldn't hear at all. Uh, he was uh, partially, uh, if not almost 70-80% blind. He was a baby boy. And, and uh, he had a, a heart condition where uh, part of the, the valves were, were sealed. And so uh, he went for three major surgeries. The first one, as, as young as seven days old, he went for a major surgery. And we were talking about like open surgery. And uh, they, the mom was uh, in a place of, of, to be honest, desperation. She was like, they can't uh, do any more work unless that, that valve uh, uh, opens up or else he wouldn't be able to handle it. And here's a mom who, this, this was her first pregnancy. She had a, a baby girl back home and here's a baby boy in the hospital. And so we went down and we, we, we prayed. We, we prayed together with her for almost an hour. We played with the baby and, uh, and we were hopeful. We believed and we declared all the scriptures we knew how to declare, we, we prayed, kingdom come, will be done. And, and a, a week later, I, I get news that, that Carlson passed on. Baby boy died. Why did that happen? I don't know. It's a mystery. I don't know. I've been in healing meetings, uh, you know, I privilege to travel a bit and uh, I've seen uh, backs healed I've seen like people with uh, herniated discs come to alignment I've seen knees healed, I've seen ankles healed, I've seen uh, people who are wearing glasses, uh, not need glasses anymore Uh, I've seen all these people healed but I've walked out of those same healing meetings with people in wheelchairs for terminal conditions, not healed and if I were to rationalize in my head I'll, I'll be like Hey, these people with glasses, they don't really need that healing. This person who is terminal, he needs that healing. Why didn't that happen? And it's so dangerous for me to start speculating and start coming to my own opinions or my own conclusions. It's mystery. And this is what happened to John. John, in a place of disappointment, in a place of mystery, not knowing, in a place of offense, he started speculating. And he sent word to his two disciples, ask Jesus, is he even the Messiah? Do I wait for someone else who, who come deliver me? How many of you have found yourself in that position before? In the face of disappointment, in the face of mystery. You speculate and then you come to your own conclusion. Here's what happens, okay, when you speculate, okay, when you talk about it enough, it becomes popular opinion. Popular opinion always becomes belief systems. And belief systems Mark my words, will shape your destiny, will shape your experience. If you feed your heart on the negative things, you'll find yourself continually in negative experiences. Why? Because the Bible says that out of the heart flows the issues of life. Are you with me? Mystery. Oftentimes we try and rationalize and come up with logical reasonings for why these things happen. 
Maybe it wasn't God's will. Familiar? Maybe the person praying or the person getting prayed for was struggling with sin. Maybe there was a lack of faith. Maybe healing doesn't happen today. Maybe Jesus, Jesus isn't even real. John, in the face of death, had completely disregarded all that the Messiah had done, his own experience, the prophetic fulfillments. And that's what we often do. We hurt, we feel pain, we feel offense. That leads to doubt. That doubt, when left unchecked, will give room to speculation. And speculation that isn't sanctified will create bad doctrine and bad beliefs. Bill Johnson said this. He said, I cannot afford to have a thought in my head that, is, that isn't his. So we, we know Bill Johnson as this, this phenomenal guy, this phenomenal teacher, preacher, signs and wonders kind of guy. You know, he said, I cannot afford to have a thought in my head that isn't his. But maybe we'll appreciate him a bit more when we come to realize that at the height of Bill's ministry, when you're seeing miracles happen on, on a daily basis, when you're seeing people healed left, right, center, his own dad was riddled with cancer. And that, that, that disease was devouring his dad right before his eyes. As he was seeing these miracles happen, as he was traveling, as he was seeing the kingdom of God invade, impossible circumstance, he had one at home, to which he didn't have an answer for. And on the week that Bill's dad died of cancer, Bill spoke in church on Sunday and he said this, we cannot sacrifice the goodness of God on the altar of human reasoning just so we can be satisfied with an explanation. We cannot sacrifice the goodness of God on the altar of human reasoning just so we can be satisfied with an explanation. And this is what we often do and we are often guilty of. We take what is the absolute goodness of God. What I, I said at the start is absolute. It's, it's non-negotiable. Je- the, the Lord said, I will heal. I have made the decision to heal. I will bring deliverance. I will bring freedom. And then we are faced with a circumstance it's not comfortable. Mystery. And we take one of those truths, Jesus heals, and we lay it on that altar of human reasoning. And we say, yeah, maybe Jesus doesn't heal today. Or maybe it wasn't his will. And we come up with theologies and doctrines that are contrary to the nature of God. Any theology that celebrates something that God is not is blasphemous in nature. You're blaspheming against God. When we say that God sends cancer to teach people a lesson, when God sends diseases to, to, uh, uh, to form people's character, we come into agreement with the devil. And that is blasphemy. Can we be a church that has the right beliefs? Can we have a church that truly knows how good this God we serve is? In mystery, in uncertainty, when we are comfortable. It's so tempting for me to do that. You know, I've prayed for countless people. I've seen them leave disappointed. I feel so tempted to tell them sometimes, you know, it's he has a plan or maybe it's not his will or you just need a little bit of faith. But I recognize that every time I'm prone to give that kind of answer and reply, that reply is always aimed at it brings some form of comfort and satisfaction to my soul. I want to feel better. I want to know it's, it's uh, I, I, want, I just want to feel better. And sometimes in, in mystery, that's what we do. We come up with answers to questions that God isn't answering. Bad doctrine, bad belief leads to bad experiences. I'm not saying ignore the pain. Don't get me wrong. This pain and frustration I feel inside, I can either turn it into offense and draw away from him or use it as fuel to press in deeper to recognize that I need more of his kingdom on the earth. You have an opportunity in the face of mystery, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of questions to get offended or use it as fuel to to stir up a drive in you for more of the kingdom. You have an opportunity in mystery. Many of us have probably experienced some form of pain, unanswered prayer or disappointment in God and oftentimes we are prone to withdrawing or wandering. And I get that. But I've seen believers get disillusioned and disgruntled and wander themselves out of the faith. And wander themselves out 
into dangerous doctrines. How many of you know a person like that, a friend like that? Yeah? An experience. From that, they create a theology of a God that isn't good. And once you give room and give way to that, you will self-select yourself out of the kingdom of God. Because why would you want a king that isn't fully good? Am I making sense? Today, as I close, I want to present to you our cornerstone beliefs. Our cornerstone beliefs. And I've, I've, I've picked four beliefs that I believe would form the cornerstone of this church. Cornerstones, if you know, when you, when you build a building, they are the stone that signifies the corner uh, of each building. And so you have four on each end, right? Hence, cornerstone. But there's another, there's an ancient use for cornerstones. And that is when farmers, when they have a plot of land, they want to demarcate the parameter of that land. They take four stones and they put it in four corners, signifying this is my land, this is my parameter. I will not move out of it. This is my land. I own this land. And I get that in pain and frustration, you will wonder, you will withdraw. Jesus himself did it. When John the Baptist was killed, he withdrew from the crowd. He withdrew from the crowd. He took a step back to pray, to mourn. I get that. It's what, it's, it's what is needed in mystery. But I want to set today four cornerstones. I want to set a parameter around this church that in spite of any circumstance that we may face, in spite of any situation, in spite of whether prayers are answered or answered, we would not wander out of this parameter. Because when we do so, we get into dangerous territory. Four cornerstone beliefs. The first one is this. I know that God is good. I know that God is good. This is the foundation of all that is the gospel, the foundation of all theology. God is good. It's not God does good things. It's not God is good at some things and does things good things sometimes. He is absolutely, perfectly good. That is God. When Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, what did the Lord do? I have that verse up. Says this. Do I have that verse up? He said this. Please show me your glory. Moses said this, and then he said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you." Moses asked for the glory. He asked God, "Show me that glory." And and that word glory loosely translates to the word nature. Show me who you are. Show me your ways. Show me. I don't want to just be satisfied with knowing what you do. I want to know why you do it. I want to know your ways. The Bible says this, that the children of Israel were acquainted with the acts of God, but Moses was acquainted with the ways of God. Because he asked this question, God, show me your glory. And Moses, I, 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 our picture was expecting a, a fireworks display. You know, he's seen the pillar of fire, he's seen the, the cloud by night, he's seen the miraculous happen before his eyes. But the Lord showed him his goodness, his nature. Moses, I am absolutely good. My nature is good. I'm incapable of doing anything evil or bad. I'm completely good. Question of the hour is this. If God is good, then why does bad things happen? If God is so good, why do bad things still happen? Why does sickness still ravage the earth? Why do wars still happen? What did he teach his disciples to pray? He said this, pray that my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If his will is done on the earth, that would be a senseless prayer. His will is, is not fully accomplished and fully realized on the earth. It says this in the Bible, that His will is that none shall perish. Let me ask you a question. Are people still perishing? Are people still suffering? His will is that none shall perish. Can I put it to you that the will of God is not fully realized on the earth? It requires you and me. 
requires you and me to put a demand and reach up into the rip sky and bring his kingdom to the earth. God is good, absolutely good. He is not responsible for any shred of evil that happens on the earth. He's not. Am I making sense? It's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. In mystery, we have to search out His glory, which is His goodness. In mystery, uncertainty, and pain, we have the opportunity to press in and search for the goodness of God. That's why Jesus said this to John. Hey John, in your pain, in your suffering, in prison, notice that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Focus on what is good. Feed your heart on what I'm doing instead of taking offense with what I'm seemingly not. That's my charge to you this morning. Feed your heart on what God is doing. Running out of time, but let's go to the second point. It says this. I know that everything was paid for on the cross. I know that everything was paid for on the cross. And oftentimes we were here, you know, especially with uh, sub- the subject of healing. Maybe it's God's will for that person to be healed. Maybe it's God's will for that person not to be healed. It's His timing. Jesus paid that price once and for all on that cross. He's not paying it right now through installments. The blood was not shed in installments. It was shed full and it paid in full. Jesus made the decision to heal 2,000 years ago. He is not sitting on his throne and going, heal, not heal, heal, not heal, heal, not heal. He's not vetoing your prayers. He has made the decision to heal completely once and for all. We, we never had that, that perception when we approach the throne of grace where we bring our friends to the front and we say, hey, pray that sinner's prayer or, or pray that, that, you know, that you would be saved and that your, your life would be given Jesus. We never go to a friend and say, hey, you may pray the prayer, but uh, it's subject to approval from heaven. We don't do that. But why do we do the same thing with healing when salvation and healing was said in the same breath? Why do we do that? Why do we give room to a theology that is not of the Lord? Why do we let our experiences define the goodness of God? Everything was paid for on the cross. I have a friend, his name is, is Joshua Frost. His friend, uh, his father, Jack Frost, wrote the book Experiencing Father's Embrace, which is probably one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. Revolutionized my life. And Jack, Jack Frost was a tremendous man of God. But Jack, uh, before he went into ministry, was a, a, a boat captain. And because of his career, he would inhale all these fumes and that, led about, that brought about lung cancer. And so, you know, the body of Christ all around the world was contending for Jack's healing. And in some years, Jack passed away because of cancer. And my friend Joshua Frost rushed back home and, and he, he gave a eulogy at that funeral. And uh, as he was giving that eulogy, in pain, in disappointment, impossible offense, he stood in front of that crowd of people and he hears the Holy Spirit say something to him. There is a lady here who has stage 4 cancer and I want you to pray for her. Catch this. Jack's, Joshua's dad just passed on of lung cancer. In a place of question, Joshua had the opportunity to bear offense or to trust God once again. And that, w- that was what Joshua did. At a eulogy, he said, is there anyone here with stage 4 cancer? And the lady in the front row shot up her hand and said, that's me. Joshua pulls her aside and prays for her. She goes back to her col- oncologist, comes back two days later, cancer-free. Why does God do that? Why does that happen? Why didn't that happen for his dad? I don't know. Mystery. In mystery, I either have the opportunity to bear an offense and draw away from God or trust Him once again. When you, t- when you make a decision to draw away and not trust, you miss out on the opportunity to see His kingdom invade. 
Imagine if he didn't. Imagine if he didn't. Another person did. Axel is one of my heroes. Most of you probably wouldn't, wouldn't know his dad, but his dad was, was in our church in the early days. His dad uh, battled with cancer for so many years and eventually died of cancer. And, and Axel like, went through questions, doubts, uncertainty. But he knew everything was paid for on the cross. Where did he end up? He ended up in Mozambique, Iris, with Heidi Baker. Probably the place where, where the most miracles happen today will be that place. And he went there. Every miracle that he saw, a potential reminder of the miracle that didn't happen for his dad. But he chose not to bear an offense. He chose to press in and trust. Hero. Hero. Let's go to the next one. I know that everything, sorry, I know that nothing is impossible. <laughs> Gotta hear myself there. <laughs> I know that everything is possible. We cannot lose hope, ladies and gentlemen. Hope is, is, is what makes us intrinsically, intrinsically Christian. Hope is this. It is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible means the confident expectation of good. Why can you have a confident expectation of good and only good to come? Because you serve, you have a good father. Utterly, completely, perfectly good. My absolute favorite moment of ministry in, in my short years of ministry would be the first person I saw instantly healed. And this was an old man. He, he walked into a, a prayer room that, that we had going on in my school. And, and he walked in and he had this condition for 37 years. He had severe herniated disc. And what we would do is we would typically ask the person like, hey, uh, what's your pain level from a 1 to 10? And this is what he said to me. And this old man walked in 37 years with this condition. He walked in with his daughter and he said, when I am standing still, it's perpetually an eight, excruciating. But whenever I make the mistake of trying to bend down to pick up something, my back will instantly freeze up and it will keep me locked in that position. And that position is a perpetual 10. And he will have to be carried into the hospital. They have to give him several jabs to loosen up the muscles. And then he's back to an 8 again. Perpetual pain for 37 years. This man could have borne an offense. He, could have, he, he told me he was suicidal. He wanted to kill himself. Imagine living with that pain for 37 years. And he came to the healing rooms one day and filled with hope. And I had the privilege of praying for him. And as I prayed for him, heat started feeling his whole back, his whole body. And he got instantly healed in that moment. He started jumping up and down, started banging backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. And I was standing, standing there in shock and awe. And of course, I was fascinated with the miracle. At the point, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to see a miracle. I just want to see a miracle. I was so fascinated by that. But all of a sudden, he stopped his movements. And he looked me in the eye and started crying. He started crying. He started crying. And then I looked over and his daughter started crying. Both of them sobbing, weeping in that room. And instinctively, I knew. Uh, instantly, I knew that, that this miracle that happened today that momentum that was created doesn't stop today. Generations to come in that family's lineage, they will know of a God that heals. They will know of a God that delivers. They will know of a God who will satisfy my hope. That is the God we serve. Nothing is impossible. When Jesus reached the tomb of Lazarus, it said that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. Four days, Lazarus is in the tomb, presumably rotting by then. Here's why Jesus took the extra days to come. Here's why Jesus reached the tomb in four days. In, according to Jewish custom, the soul of a person would reside on the body for three days. Day number four, done deal. Gone case. No hope. Give up. Jesus arrived on the fourth day and he raised Lazarus from the dead. What was he demonstrating? Nothing is impossible. Nothing is possible. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of all. He's the Creator Here's the creator. Come on. My last point. I know that everything is significant. I know that everything is significant. We, have, we are often guilty of compartmentalizing our experiences into significant and non-significant. 
These things that happen to me, oh, they are not significant. They, they cannot be used. They should be chucked aside. These things, oh, they are significant to ministry. They are significant to my work of God. I put them in one side. And I compartmentalize. I put them into separate boxes. And I'm saying that these things, God does not have the ability to do exceedingly abundantly above. These things, God cannot redeem and God cannot use. And I've used this example multiple times, but I keep on going back to that story of the boy with the five loaves and two fishes. And he brought everything to the hands of Jesus. And Jesus didn't pick and select the best fish or the best loaf. He used everything. And after the miracle happened, after the loaves and fishes were multiplied, what did he do? He gave instruction for not a single morsel of that food to be wasted. And that's a picture of your life and mine. He wastes nothing. Whatever you bring to his table, he can use. There can be a purpose to your pain. There can be a purpose to your circumstance if you would allow him to step in. The biggest regret of my life, I know you're not supposed to have regret. <laughs> biggest regret of my life was when I was 18 years old. Zealous, gung-ho, Christian boy. I so wanted to get baptized. I really, 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 really wanted to get baptized. And, and you know, I was so scared. I didn't want to bring it up to my parents. And so I actually did it behind my parents' back. I went to get baptized behind my parents' back. In obedience to the Lord, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't even try. I didn't even try to, to speak to them. I didn't even try to talk to them. And my parents found out about my baptism a year later. My parents are not believers yet. And so they found out about the baptism. And my parents... As they heard the news, they got up from the seats and walked out of the house. I sat on the couch alone and crying for three hours. And afterwards, they returned. And this was the first thing my mom said to me. Andre, we are not angry or disappointed that you got baptized. We are hurt that you didn't want us there. Biggest regret in my life biggest regret in my life. Two years ago, I was in Reading and uh, I Skyped in to the church on one Sunday. And I Skyped in a church. Uh, I don't do this on a regular basis. I only did it twice. But this second occasion, the cameras were, were uh, pointed in front on the baptismal tank. And I saw my sister getting baptized. And then as she went into the water, the cameras panned right, and I saw my family sitting in the front row, and I started sobbing and weeping. Because he can redeem everything. He can restore everything. Even your deepest regrets. Even your worst mistakes. Even the most painful scenarios. He can redeem and he can attach a divine purpose into it. Jeremiah 29, 11. Follow me, I know we're running it. Jeremiah 29, 11. We all know this verse. It says this. It says that, that I know the plans. Let's put that verse up. Come on. Is that verse not up? That verse is not up. Okay. Recite me, Jeremiah 29, 11. Come on. I know the plans too. Right. And every time we read that verse, we think, God on his table has a few dockets and he has plan A, B, C, D, E. And then he's like, oh my gosh, they messed up. Let me chuck plan A into the shredder. Plan B, oh, it's not working out. Let me chuck it into the shredder. Plan C, oh my gosh, I'm running out of plans. Let me chuck it into the shredder. And we think that is how the Lord operates. And that's how the Lord interacts with you and me. But that word, I know the plans, that word is, is so mistranslated, I tell you, man. It's so, it, it doesn't describe the, the word that was used in, in, in that context. The word used there is, I know the purpose I have for you. If you are a parent, if you have friends you have a hope for, you know they may miss messed up in their life, you know they may do the wrong things, you know they may go wayward for a season, but your purpose for them remains. It does not change. Because your purpose is not contingent on what they do. Your purpose is contingent on who they are. He knows the purpose He has for you. You may go off track every now and then, but His purpose remains. His purpose remains. Probably the most tragic event in human history will be the Holocaust. An estimate of 11 million Jews were killed. It's presumably the darkest hour of human history. But catch this. 
The Holocaust motivated large numbers of Jews from Europe to move to Palestine. The Holocaust pressured Germany into supplying the economic base necessary to build infrastructure and support these immigrants. The Holocaust swayed world's opinions so that the UN approved the state of Israel in 1948. It's because of the Holocaust that Israel is a nation today. Do we then assume that God brought about the Holocaust and ordained it? Heck no. But can he use your darkest hour and bring about a divine purpose and turn it around for good? Yes, he can. Everything is significant. Everything is significant. The pain that you feel is not for nothing. I'm saying that if you will allow him to, he can use your darkest moments and redeem them for his glory. Can we have the band on stage? Everyone stand, please. John 11, you know, uh, chapter in the Bible, <laughs> it, uh, it has the shortest verse recorded in all the Bible. John 11, I believe it's verse 35. And how many of you know that verse? It's two words. It says, Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? He was weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping for Lazarus. He was mourning for his friend. And you will know two verses later, Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. I think Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. He said that this, 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 this sleep is not unto death. He knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. But why did he still weep? Why did he still mourn? You can mourn. You can weep. You can feel the pain of this mystery. You can, you can be connected to that emotion. But you're not allowed to stay there. Jesus wept and then he was back into the assignment. It says that when, when Jesus was mourning for the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from the crowd, but then the crowds found him. And then once again, he was moved with compassion and he began to heal the sick. Yes, offense, he bore for a moment. But can I put it to you that offended is a choice, it's a decision. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it pain, it's painful. Yes, it's sucky but cling on to the fact that He is good. Cling on to the fact that everything is significant. Cling on to the fact that nothing is impossible and cling on to the fact that everything was purchased on the cross. Everything was purchased on the cross. What do you do in mystery? It is the great privilege of the Christian faith. This is the most profound line I can give you this morning. What do you do in mystery? I trust when I don't understand. I trust when I don't understand. What He has called you and I to do to bring His kingdom to a world that so desperately needs it. The pain of loss and trial should serve as a reminder that this world is not fully conformed to His will and His kingdom. The pain of loss and trial that was a stake that the enemy used to divide you from the Lord. That stake can be turned into firewood to fuel a fire for revival. A fire for His kingdom to come. A fire of love and hope in the Lord who makes all things work together for our good. If you have a need this morning, if you have an impossible circumstance, if you are still riddled with the pain of offense, with the pain of mystery, I want you to lift your hands to heaven right now. Lift your hands to heaven. Come on. Both hands. Lift your hands to heaven. Reach up into that sky. Lord, we command a divine exchange right now. Sorrow for joy. Your word says that though weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Morning is not a song no more. Morning is not a lifestyle. Morning is not what we get to live with, but joy cometh in the morning. 
God, we prophesy a divine exchange right now. Hope for impossible circumstance. Joy for mourning. Beauty for ashes. Come on, we're going to put a demand on heaven right now. Jesus, come meet your people right now.